The scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word that comes to us from the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the word of Christ that comes to us this day. And may we, like Mary, sit at the feet of Jesus, eager to hear what you would have to teach us. Indeed, Father, grant us strength for this task. Grant your spirit's help in the midst of our weakness. And bless us and direct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a scene early on in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which takes place in a cottage on an island when the Dursleys are trying to prevent Harry's Hogwarts letters from being delivered to him. But at midnight on Harry's birthday, Hagrid bursts through the door in order to hand deliver Harry's letter. Harry is initially confused and doesn't understand anything that Hagrid is saying why his parents are famous, or even why he supposedly is famous. And despite Uncle Vernon's attempts to stop him, Hagrid finally says, Harry, you're a wizard. And Harry then receives his letter to attend Hogwarts. More conversations ensue, but Harry still doesn't quite believe it. Hagrid, he said quietly, I think you must have made a mistake. I don't think I can be a wizard. To his surprise, Hagrid chuckled, Not a wizard, eh? Never made things happen when you were scared or angry. And then Harry remembers the odd things that had happened to him over the years, which he could never quite explain. And then Harry knew that Hagrid was right. 
See, when Harry knew his true identity, when he knew what he was and who his parents really were and who he was, everything fell into place. Well, that's something of what the Apostle Paul is telling the Colossian Christians and us as he continues in his teaching here in Colossians 3. Identity. Understanding who you are in Christ is vitally important to your life as a believer, and particularly the matter of spiritual maturity, which is foundational uh, to this letter as a whole. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this book, so perhaps a brief review is in order of this marvelous and theologically dense treatise. The theme of gratitude and thanksgiving is basically where Paul begins, even as it's a significant quality in our pursuit of maturity. In chapter 1 and verses 15 and 20, we have that hymn, that poem regarding Christ that is arguably the foundation for everything else that Paul has to say. That is the source from which springs the realities upon which the apostle goes on to expound throughout the remainder of the letter and the reconciliation that Christ has achieved in all of creation by the blood of the cross. Paul gives some initial hints at the Judaizing element for which he has concerns, but then more explicitly speaks against it in chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, the text that immediately precedes our passage this morning. But certainly we can't overlook what Paul says about baptism in chapter 2 and verse 12 and how that unites us to the death of Christ, that we were buried with him. Or still more, that he declares that we've been raised with Christ, that we who were dead have been made alive, and that God has done this, that the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, has acted. And we have this life because we're with Jesus. And upon the cross, all of our sins, all of our debt to the law was taken out of the way that we're not guilty. Still more, the Judaizers can't hold the law of Moses against us, against the Colossians, because it was crucified in Christ and has been resurrected, and their old way of doing things, their corruption has been made obsolete. What does Paul go on to emphasize in chapter 2, verse 20 and following? That if you've perished with Christ, if you've died with Christ to the old order, then why go back to it? The shadows serve their purpose. They're a reflection of the real thing. But when the reality comes, why stay in the shadows? And Paul goes on to make clear that these supposed means of greater holiness or spirituality don't actually help in combating the sinful flesh, but are actually just different ways of indulging it. As the church, as believers, we're called to world transformation, to dominion. And that doesn't happen through ascetic practices, through rejecting the good things that God has given to us, of constantly being consumed with do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. No, dominion comes about by holding fast to Jesus, and that leads us into Paul's teaching in chapter 3. And though I read through chapter uh, through verse uh, 17, we're only going to give consideration to the first four verses this morning. Now, these The verses of the whole break down fairly readily into three sections. Verses 1 through 4, we could maybe uh, label that as raised with Christ. Verses 5 through 11, putting off the old. And verses 12 to 17, putting on the new. And notice what Paul is doing here. Notice the subtle contrast. See, back in in 2.20, if you perished, if you died with Christ from the order of the world. But now he says, therefore, if you've been raised up with the Christ... Notice the death and resurrection motifs. United to Christ in his death, the old order is gone. United to Christ in his resurrection, there's a new life to pursue. 
And what Paul goes on to say in the rest of the letter is basically an application of this reality, of this resurrection identity that he's setting before the Colossians. Therefore, if you've been raised up with the Christ, things above seek. Where the Christ is at the right hand of God, sitting. Now, when we hear this language of seeking things above, it's very easy for us to fall into what we might call a Gnostic mindset. What do I mean by that? Well, we hear this language of above and coupled with what Paul goes on to say in verse 2, where he contrasts uh, the above with the earth. And it's very easy for us to think that Paul is talking about some type of disembodied super spirituality that we are to pursue. You know, up there in the clouds, there's, there's some type of serene holiness that helps us to rise above all the mundane things of life in this world. Well, Paul is not a Buddhist. He's not advocating that you go off into ethereal realms of some kind. No, he's too good of a theologian for that. And it would be inconsistent with the implications of reconciliation that he's already spoken to and what he goes on to say in the rest of the letter. So what does Paul want his hearers to understand? Well, the first implication, to state the obvious, is that the Colossians and us have been raised with Christ. Again, he's establishing their identity. He's defining their reality, which should change their perspective, how they view themselves and their calling. And Paul is commanding the Colossians to do this, to do this seeking. So what are the things above? Well, let's go on to see what, Paul else, what, what else Paul has to say. And the very next thing he says is crucial to this end. Where the Christ is at the right hand of God, sitting. Now, perhaps we hear that and kind of take it for granted or just gloss over it and think that Jesus is in heaven with the Father, which is true enough, but the implications are more involved than that. So let's unpack this a bit. Christ is in heaven. That's where he's located. Why is he there? Because he's ascended. And what does the ascension indicate? His victorious death and resurrection. The promises of the Father coming to pass. The once humiliated Jesus has now been exalted and taken his rightful place of rule and reign over all of heaven and earth. All authority has been given to him. What does Jesus' posture of sitting indicate? Well, that he is ruling and that, and that he's even at a certain... Uh, sitting also has a certain degree of, of rest about it his work having been accomplished, that the reconciliation of making peace through the blood of the cross has decisively taken place. But still more, what does it mean for Jesus to be at the right hand of God? What does the right hand indicate? It denotes immediate power, strength, protection, and favor. Jesus the Son is the Father's right-hand man. And we know from the Exodus and multiple places in the Psalms that when Yahweh fights, it's his right arm that he uses to defeat the enemy and garner the victory. And Jesus has obtained this position, has been placed there by the Father as a result of his submission to his Father's will. We're given a similar perspective in Hebrews 12 where we read, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But quite likely, Paul has in mind Psalm 110, verse 1, where David declares, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
It's my understanding that Psalm 110 is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more often than any of the other Psalms, which probably means we should be much more familiar with it than maybe we are. But Jesus holds this exalted, this highly favored position. Another implication of Paul's argument is that this should entirely reorient how we understand the Christian life. Christ is central to the things above, and those things are chiefly defined through Him. Maybe that seems pretty basic, stating the obvious. But it's crucial to our understanding, to our very existence and calling as believers. Furthermore, the exaltation of Jesus validates the pattern that he's given to the church to follow, the life of service, even as displayed in the upper room when he washes the disciples' feet, calling them to love one another as I have loved you. That often entails forgiveness, even as Paul goes on to detail in verses 13 and 14 here in Colossians 3. But Paul adds another layer to his instruction in verse 2 when he gives a second command to the Colossians, telling them things above regard not things upon the earth. Now we hear that, and again, what's our natural tendency? To think that Paul is saying that nothing earthly matters. You know, that we shouldn't care about bacon or kittens or donuts or coffee or good jokes, etc. But again, that's, that's not Paul's point. To a certain extent, we can make the case that things of the earth are what Paul delineates in verses 5 through 11, which we could characterize as personal and social, social sins. And that the things above are what he addresses in verse 12 and following, the various attributes that ought to constitute the lives of believers. So maybe that helps us a bit, but we also have to understand what Paul is doing through this comparison. We do well to go to Jesus' teaching in John 8 to further help us. There Jesus tells some Pharisees, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now is Jesus saying he's an alien, an extraterrestrial? No, not really. He's making a point about his origin. You know, he's giving his origin story. He comes from heaven, which sets him apart from the Pharisees who are bound to the fallen world and sin. Jesus is not from that world. And Paul's logic follows a similar line here in Colossians. And when we read this distinction between heaven and earth, between above and below, the Bible is drawing a contrast of origins. In chapter 3 of John's Gospel, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And there Jesus is talking about salvation and the new life that comes by the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. But if you're born from above, then that means your citizenship belongs to the above, to the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be below, to be on the earth? Is that simply referring to human existence in a general physical sense? No, it's referring to having been born in Adam to being born in sin. What was Adam made out of? What does his name even mean? You know, it's earth, dust, dirt. In the Old Testament, Israel was known as what? The land people, the, the people of the, the land, the earth. What were the Gentiles? They were the sea people. Having resoundingly rejected Judaism already, this may even be another subtle way of Paul distancing the New Testament church from Judaism and the corruption of the Old Testament law, which has been fulfilled in Christ. We run into a similar dichotomy in 1 Corinthians 
15 with Paul's use of spirit and flesh. What does it mean to be of the spirit? To be born by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? What does it mean to be of the flesh? To be dead in your sins in Adam. Paul is not drawing a contrast between a disembodied state versus being human, but referring to the two types of humanity that exist under the two covenant heads, Jesus and Adam. Jesus is from heaven. He's from above. Sinful Adam is from the earth. He's from below. So when Paul tells the Colossians to set their minds, to have a settled way of understanding, to maintain an attitude of the things that are above, he's commanding them to live according to the life Jesus inaugurated in his own incarnation, death and resurrection, the one he taught and demonstrated, the one he imparted to the disciples who then became apostles and then began to spread this message to the ends of the earth. Perhaps a principle that's helpful for us to keep in mind is the idea that heaven is the place where things happen first. You know, the tabernacle that Moses built or the temple that Solomon had built, what were they based off of? Well, heavenly blueprints. Their origin was from God. Similarly, we shouldn't be surprised to hear Paul advocating that the pattern for the church also has a heavenly origin. And while Paul will get into more specifics about what the life um, that originates from heaven looks like, what can we generally say for the time being? That's a life of self-giving love as exemplified in Christ, a life of service and sacrifice, even as the Father rewarded Jesus by raising him from the dead, and then by way of the ascension takes his place on the throne in heaven at the Father's side. Jesus came to the earth and set forth a new way of living, a new way of being. Jesus came and established a different kind of kingdom in comparison to the kingdoms of this world, the principalities and powers, the stoicheia, the the old order of the world. And our model, our pattern is exemplified in Christ above, who rules and reigns now, and not in the patterns of the earth, the patterns we inherited from Adam in the old age, not from the old order. The new age has come in Christ, and we are called to live according to the identity that he established, that he has established and given. When you stop and think about it, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about heaven. But one thing it does make clear is that heaven is the place where the crucified Christ already reigns, where his people already have the rights of full citizenship. For Paul to call us to consider Christ in heaven is a call to meditate upon the sort of life that Christ lived, grounded upon the reality that he is enthroned as the Lord of the whole world. And again, this understanding of identity is so vitally important for us to grasp, consider, and appropriate by faith. Paul calls you to be who you already are by the sheer grace of Christ, as opposed to what you think you might someday achieve through enough effort. This new life is the starting point for your life as a Christian in your daily battles against sin and temptation, even the sins that Paul specifically mentions in verses 5 through 11. When you already know who you are, it's far less confusing and diffuses anxiety about who you are to be and what you are to do. And so it's for you and me, knowing our identity in Christ, that we might be who and what he has called us to be. 
Well, Paul further undergirds this perspective and he directs the Colossians to this reality when he says in verse 3, For you died and your life has been hidden with the Christ in God. Now, maybe at first glance, this tack uh, by Paul is a bit unexpected and and maybe it throws us off. But what's he saying here? Well, it's certainly incumbent upon us to seek to think biblically. And Paul is teaching us to do that very thing here, whether we realize it or not. What do I mean? Well, hang on for just a second. Recall from a couple weeks ago the point that we observed that the the scriptures teach us that theologically, which is also a reality, that we are with Christ in heaven. It is stated as a fact so that we are as close to Christ as we can be. Now, we did add the caveat that our experience of that closeness will change in glory. But the fact of it remains 100% true now because the Bible tells us so. And part of the application of this is that we don't need Mary or other saints getting in the way between Jesus and us because theologically, biblically speaking, their proximity to Jesus is the same as ours. And it's for us to believe this reality by faith. Now look again at what Paul says to the Colossians, for you died. What does Paul mean? Have they physically died? Of course not, otherwise... How could they be hearing this letter? But Paul's not wasting words, and he he isn't simply being metaphorical. What Paul is doing is picking up on the language and imagery he's already established in the letter, particularly in chapter 2, where he mentions that we're buried with Christ and that we've died with Christ. And this has really and actually happened. When? At your baptism. You see, for Christians, the big death has already taken place. And you know when that was? Well, it was when a pastor sprinkled or poured some water on your head at whatever age, from infant to adult, or maybe you were immersed. But that's when you primarily died. And the death at the end of your life, whenever that day comes, is secondary. And to believe this to be the case requires what? Faith. Why? Because that's not how it looks. Sure, we know this to be true about baptism, and our baptismal liturgy reflects this aspect of baptism, which is admittedly multifaceted. But think about those times when that infant is getting baptized. It's often a moving moment, and sometimes it's cute, and often we wonder if the baby is going to cry when they get wet. But it also serves, baptism serves as a point of death. That covenant child dies at the moment. But then, of course, is resurrected, is regenerated into the new life into which he or she is to live. And we, maybe we're left wondering if a bit of water can be death, but it can be because God's Word teaches it. And thinking biblically in this fashion is freeing, as biblical thinking often is, when we stop and think about it. You know, if you've gone, undergone this death, this baptism, the death that really counts, then you don't need to fear the other. And so you can live fully and freely in this world in service to Christ and his kingdom. Then notice the latter part of verse 3. And your life has been hidden with the Christ in God. 
That's interesting when we stop and think about it. But remember, where is Jesus seated at the right hand of God in heaven? And can anything touch Christ? Can anything overthrow him or disturb his rule or reign there? No, not a single thing, not a single enemy or power, because they've all been thwarted and disarmed and humiliated at the cross. And so what Paul seems to be doing is further instilling the confidence the Colossian church should have in Christ in the pursuit of the heavenly life to which they're called. Granted, there's something a bit mysterious about this, isn't there? Yes, because Paul says our life is hidden with Christ. We can't see it, in a sense. I think part of the implication is that we can't see Christ. He's hidden to us in a manner of speaking. But such is the life of faith. Paul has touched upon the theme of hiddenness on a couple of occasions earlier in the letter. In chapter 1 and verse 16, he talks about the mystery hidden for ages, and then of Christ in chapter 2 and verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the latter inviting perpetual exploration on our part. But there's presently a degree of hiddenness that we experience in relation to Christ in our lives. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 4, When the Christ has been made visible, the life of you, then also you with him will be made visible in glory. Now, the usual rendering of this verse in English conveys the idea of when Christ appears and makes us think of his second coming at the end of history. And then we in the future will appear with him in glory in heaven. And so what Paul is doing is still speaking to the life of faith and that the Colossian church must understand and believe that when Jesus appears at the end of history, then they will appear with him as well. And something to that effect, the second of the second advent of Christ is how, how scholars generally take this. And it's certainly um, a safe interpretation of the text and orthodox enough and certainly an application of what Paul is saying. However, I'm inclined to think that Paul has something else in mind and perhaps maybe a first level of application when he refers to Christ being made visible. The same word is used earlier in chapter 1 and verse 26 where we read, The mystery, the one having been concealed from the ages and from the generations, but now he has revealed to his saints. What was a mystery has been made manifest. What was concealed has now been revealed. And recall what Paul said in 3.3, And your life has been hidden with Christ. Now here in verse 4, there's a revealing. You know, something unseen being made visible. Now let's ask ourselves, if we lived in Colossae in the first century, what future event is coming in which Christ will be revealed, made manifest? What event receives a good deal of press in the New Testament epistles, and even by Jesus himself, spanning at least chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew's Gospel, for example? Well, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And what is that event going to do? It's going to jettison the church forward even more to the ends of the earth, make the church more visible to the world. As the final nail is driven in the coffin of the old world, the old order, including Judaism. Now, maybe you're not quite convinced, and that's fine. After all, um, what Paul's saying to the Colossians will be made visible in glory. So doesn't in glory mean heaven? Well, it can. Um, that's certainly um, a fair interpretation. 
But how has Paul used glory so far in this letter? This is his third use of the term. In chapter 1 and verse 11, he uses it in his opening prayer on behalf of the Colossian church, mentioning, in all strength, being strengthened according to the power of his glory in all endurance and long-suffering with joy. What is the source of this strength? The power of his glory? What does that mean? The Holy Spirit. Recall that the presence of the glory cloud in the Old Testament indicates the presence of the Holy Spirit who also appears with the Son and Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. Paul is praying for their power and strength to come from the Holy Spirit. Paul uses glory again in chapter 1 and verse 27 when he says, To whom God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery in the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. Once again, when we studied this text, we equated glory primarily with the Holy Spirit. Central to what Paul is saying here has to do with the gift, the riches, the abundance that comes with the Holy Spirit, which is a foretaste of the future glory now experienced and known in the present. You know, the Holy Spirit is a down payment of the glory, if you will. So then, does it work for us to understand Paul's use of glory in a similar way here in chapter 3 as an indirect way of referring to the Holy Spirit? Yes, I think it does, because the church is united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. And there's a sense in which when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, as Jesus pronounces in Matthew 25, and which our study from earlier this year revealed is Jesus referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, that the church participates in that after a fashion. The body of Christ, the church, is connected to the head, namely Jesus. And the vindication of Jesus in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 is also a vindication of the church. Of course, it was the Roman army that destroyed Jerusalem. and The apostles warned and warned the church to get out of Jerusalem before it was destroyed or told them, make sure you don't go back. Jesus told them when it was going to happen and they weren't to be caught unawares. And why would the Colossians care about the destruction of Jerusalem? After all, they're, they're Gentile believers anyway, not Jewish converts. Well, partly because Jesus and the apostles had plenty to say about it, and if it mattered to them, then it should matter to the churches. But there's also a further implicit encouragement in this. Consider the pressure these Colossian Christians likely face from local Judaizers. And Paul is basically continuing to tell them to stay put, to stay in Christ. Don't go anywhere. Stay hidden in this life for the time being because things are going to be made more visible soon enough. You stay the course with Christ. And certainly that has application for us even as we look to the second coming of Christ. And it's still the testimony of the church to stay put. And that things are going to be revealed even as we confess each and every week in the Nicene Creed. But maybe you already noticed, in the space of four verses, Paul mentions the Christ four times, always with a definite article, and a fifth time by implication when Paul says, with him, later in verse 4. Paul is so intensely focused upon the Christ, and he wants the Colossian believers to see Jesus as the center and source of their life, and he wants us to understand the same. To be with Christ expresses an intimate personal union or close association. And where are these Colossian believers? 
And where are these Colossian believers going to be? Made visible with Christ. Perhaps we can even say that the hidden life in Christ from heaven is ever secure, but then is revealed by the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and the world. And you, you probably feel it. Uh, there's, there's some tension, some biblical tension in this kind of perspective. You see, there, there's a sense in which the, the hidden reality of heaven, that which we cannot see with our eyes, continues to determine the outworking of history and is the true source for wisdom and knowledge in this world. We know this to be true by faith. Our lives live from day to day in this world are a reflection of it. We draw from a hidden resource that the world cannot see. And we have little to behold ourselves except for the simple elements of bread and wine and some water that the Lord has given to us. But they're enough. And still more, we can be sure of this Christ and recognize that what is presently taking place in the world is the further manifestation of Christ's enemies becoming his footstool. It might not look like that. might not feel that way. Certainly in countries like China, North Korea, or Afghanistan, the enemies of Christ and his church are anything but submissive to his rule and reign. But where is Christ? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And where are we? With Christ, who is our life, and whose life we are to reflect as we live and move and have our being in this world according to priorities of our heavenly King. And when we understand our position and place with Christ, our heavenly origin, that's foundational to understand who we are in Him and what we are called to be and do. And again, Paul is going to go into greater detail as to what that looks like in the verses to come. He's going to meddle in the details of our lives. You know, the gospel is going to sink down to the nooks and crannies of our everyday lives where it belongs. But before doing so, he's making our identity clear. Who we are in Christ, our heavenly king, which makes all of the difference in the world. Let us pray. Father and our God, impress evermore upon us the truth of Christ's reign in our place with him. May we understand more fully our identity in him and the life to which you call us. Indeed, may we continue to mature in Christ by your word and spirit and continue to strengthen us by the sacraments that you've given to us. Bless us and keep us for these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.